It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. week on the New Statesman podcast, we've got the inside track on the autopsy into Labour's general election defeat, before discussing autopsies of an entirely different kind with Stephanie Boland. But then Helen Lewis and I are down the line to the lobby with George to find out the latest on what's going on in Westminster. I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Stephen, I'm going to start, I think we should start by going back in time to the beginning of the week and to David Cameron's speech about extremism, which I thought had a problem. And it was a problem that Labour, I can say it was a trap that Labour fell into, which is that there was at the heart of it a quite a progressive point, wasn't there? This is my theory. So one of the ways that Cameron framed it was saying, we have a problem, which is when there is, you know, Perhaps uh, men have, have immigrated to Britain and their wives or sisters or families come over and those women are effectively kind of imprisoned in their communities because they never learn English. And if you don't learn English, you lose access to the labour market. You know, it's hard. We know from domestic violence where, you know, it's really it's just hard to access services that you need if you are locked out of your country. So... I thought there was an important point there and and you know people like the Running Me Trust have looked into some communities I think they mentioned the Somali community and the Bangladeshi community mm. as having very low levels of female participation in the workforce and and why that might be an issue but it was all smooshed up in into a sort of I don't know like a kind of enemy within kind yeah, of Yeah that was my problem like every woman in a niqab is you know is secretly coming to get you kind of vibe which I found kind of unwholesome and unpleasant but the way that I thought labor fell into the well, they didn't. Same thing. They didn't. They didn't. Was to, uh, you know, whether or not do you want to have an argument about whether or not Cameron is saying things that are slightly racist. Is that the argument to have, or is the argument to have about English for speakers of other language classes? You know, is the argument about saying if you're going to accept the economic benefits of immigration, then you should also defray the social challenges of that by providing English language lessons? Yeah, because I mean, so yeah, so the 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 there, there is a a real problem with. Uh, women being shut out of the labour market. I mean, I remember, you know, I mean, so the 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 biggest problem demographic is uh, only ten percent of Somalian women over sixteen are in the labour market at all. You know, not in part time, not not in full time work. You know, in no form of work whatsoever. Some of whom are not in work because they're they're doing caregiving responsibilities. But uh, I mean, so you know, the the classic scenario of parents' evenings for me when I was at school was a very good friend of mine who once said jokingly when they they said, "Oh, it's fine for me if my report's bad. I just 
yeah, I don't translate my it. grades can improve a lot in between translation. Um, but this was the thing that I thought was quite interesting about that Somali women's statistic because in other, it, it reminds me of this sort of dual standard that we have when if you put, and it's Muslims doing this at the end and it automatically, some people find it scary. So in other circumstances, you'd imagine the kind of Daily Mail and the tele- Telegraph will be quite in favour of quote unquote traditional families where women stay at home to look after the kids they don't you know they don't have a role but then you say oh by the way but it's 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 muslims doing that and then it becomes kind of da 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 i like the same thing about when i find it really funny when journalists write about how segregation in schools and how terrifying this is when it's muslims doing it and then you look up and they went to like eton or st paul's or something like yeah. that no, there is obviously a huge double standard and also it's the classic thing with cameron in the you know English for speaks foreign languages is a brilliant. It's actually a, a left wing achieve, uh, achievement. It was Harold Wilson who first introduced English speaking classes for people from other languages. He did it for people from the Commonwealth, mm. and it was Tony Blair's government which uh, effectively rebooted it because by that point most of the people who were learning English were not from Commonwealth countries. Uh, triggered certain funding things to do with free school meals as well, and increased greatly the amount of money that was being put into it in 1999. And actually, I think what Labour ought to have done with this is that sometimes you can do more damage to the Tories by taking them at entirely face value. If you take Cameron's speech seriously, what he's telling us is that because he cut English language lessons, he's cut he's cut them every year since he got into power, we are now at more more risk of being blown up. That's the thing, isn't like, it? It's, because it's, of bad decisions uh, I made, you, you know, there has yeah. been extremism is now more of a threat to Britain. Okay, Cameron. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things but. where I, I, don't, I don't think... That is not why I think English language are good. I think it's good because people can access the labour market, because you're more likely to be able to pass on soft skills, you're less likely to get ill. You know, you can, you know your life is in, immeasurably better. And if I want to sell you something, my life is immeasurably easier if we share a common language. However... It's one of those weird things where Labour can make that argument, or they had a, a, it's a golden opportunity to look tough on immigration, which we know, thanks to this report which has come out this week into their defeat, was one of their problems, in a way which doesn't actually hurt anyone, which helps people who benefit from being system, and points out that once again, it's the classic pattern of conservative austerity, which is to cut something which people don't use, because that's the easiest thing to do cut things for a major- minority of people, most of whom vote Labour anyway, then realise two, three years down the line, oh, wait, this is actually quite important. Uh, yeah, I mean, so Cameron gave a speech where he went, as a direct result of my me being in government, you are more likely to get blown up. Sat back down again and everyone went, oh, OK, cool. Um, That's what I mean. That's why I think that the incorrect yeah. response to that is to go, this is very racially insensitive because it's not, it, it's point, kind of the argument that he wants you to have about it. Whereas having the argument about austerity being self-defeating is both more useful to people, there's more you can, and practical consequences of that. Mm. And it, it, it puts, like you say, it puts him in a different situation. I want to move on slightly to the um, Beckett report. Tragically, not the Samuel Beckett report into the uh, Labour's loss in 2015, um, but Margaret Beckett's report. And let's role play for a moment, and you be Stephen Bush, and I'll be someone who has only read snippets of it on our website. Okay, I'm struggling to imagine that you would only <laughs> read snippets of of this uh, 36 pager on the. So it's it's it, it's it was billed as an autopsy into Labour's defeat. Well, everyone uh, thought it was going to be really brutal, didn't they? This was I, I got the sense that the Labour right thought this was it. This was the killer ammo when it was going to say the problem with uh, Ed Miliband was that he was too left-wing and everyone thought that he was going to let in immigrants and benefit scroungers. And it doesn't seem to have really delivered that killer blow they were hoping for. Oh, uh, yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, the thing is, it's one of those things where in some ways it's worse than useless because if it had completely debunked 
the idea that Ed Miliband lost because he was too left wing, that would probably surprise a lot of academics who've studied the defeat, but it would at least be a useful starting point. The problem is there's if you, if that's what you want from the report, uh, there's plenty of evidence for it in the report. However, if you want to believe that Ed Miliband was just a poor salesman and people thought he was weak, there's plenty of that. There's even if you're the people who believe that increasing turnout is a viable path to win an election, there's even just enough to keep those people faintly happy in it. One of the things I think is a really troublesome finding is the fact that individual left-wing policies are really popular, but they don't add up to a coherent policy platform. Because I think that's intuitively... like I find that very difficult to grasp as somebody who you know who spends a, an unhealthy amount of time thinking about politics. But something like renationalisation of the railways, you go, well, actually, 66% of people support that. However, it weaves into a kind of tapestry or a narrative. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is that, is that Labour didn't find the way to say... But also, most These, people don't yeah. use the railways. I mean, I think the, the individually popular left-wing policies, um, the mansion tax, which, you know, I, I personally am still still for. The great thing about taxing land is people can't move it offshore. It's, you know, it's a great way of getting more money in for the exchequer. Osborne is basically implementing one by stealth in order to make up for the fact he has no way of hitting his fiscal targets without some form of revenue raise. Um, but... It's just not an issue people vote on. So most of the problem is most of their left-wing policies, they might be policies which in aggregate improve people's lives, but it's a bit like the fact most of Michael Howard's policies were popular. Most people want to bring back the death penalty. I mean, I'm always sceptical about the people want to renationalise the railways. My instinct is, is if someone says to me, so the average British voter thinks that the death penalty is good, that immigration is too high, then the railway should be renationalised, and... Um, then private provision should be kept out of the NHS entirely. I.e., the average voter, if asked, wants a roster of policies a lot like the 1950s. I am not convinced, just because some of the aspects of being in the 50s were left-wing, that we should listen to what that voter says and goes, ah, oh, brilliant, this is the way to full socialism. Um, but, I mean, I, I'm one of those people who I kind of think, and actually the big problem with the 2015 defeat is I think there were probably problems with Labour's policy platform, but ultimately... Cameron, for all his many flaws, looks like he could be Prime Minister in a TV movie. Ed Miliband looked a bit like he could be Prime Minister in a movie made by the Jim Henson Creature Workshop. And then actually, but that, that is a no, big know, deal. No, I know, because like, I ended up thinking like, that one of the problems I, I've had is I've always felt faintly on edge, like Ed Miliband was going to like fall over or do something. I, 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 was, I was on a high level of sort of like pre-cringe, like I was ready to cringe. I'm never stressed out when I watch uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn give an interview. Even when he gives a, an interview mm. that I think is bad for tactical reasons, it's... Um, no, you know, he's very composed. He's, he's, he's very composed. Uh, yeah. When when he makes what I think is a mistake, he's not, you know, he he's not fallen to, into it. He is. Yeah, he say, is, he tends to have yeah, he, he has gone it. straight into it. He knows what he's uh, he's doing. It's not. Whereas there was exactly say that physically painful thing with Ed when it was kind of like. Well, I think oh. Steve Richards quoted the um, the Miliband response to the election of Syriza in Greece, and it's this tortured long paragraph about the well. Of course, you know, other countries get to make up their minds, and that's the process. So, but it, what it didn't at any point say was, "Do you think it is a good thing or not that Greece has elected a radical left government?" And Jeremy Corbyn just would not have a problem. He'd go, "Yes, yes, they have spoken. People are, you know, they want to stand up to the EU's austerity agenda. That is great." And Cameron's got a clear answer, which is. No, these are kind of a bunch of Bolsheviks are going to drive Greece into the ground. And yeah. there is something definitely to be said for that level of, of clarity. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, as to be honest, I confidently expect uh, Jeremy Corbyn leads Labour into the next election and it is a heavy defeat, 
The one good thing about it is actually I think it will serve several useful prospects. One, voters didn't know what Labour stood for under Ed, and I think there's probably a necessary step that first you have to stand for things people don't like, and they trust you to stand for something, and then actually probably it's easier for someone else to then stand for things that they yeah. do like. And that was a big problem during yeah. the leadership election last year, wasn't it? it? Was it was the feeling that it was kind of principles versus power? Oh, and they all and the other three were all awful. I know. I think well, we let like the statute of limitations has kind of yeah. run out, and we can kind of go. They didn't run great campaigns. I think yeah. it's fair to say. Um, I just want to quickly mention polling as well because I thought that was really interesting. The inquest into polling had come out, and there were some really interesting tweets by Sam Coates of the Times saying it's quite convenient for the polling industry that they can say actually we oversampled Labour voters. It would be less, and and he suggested that you know possible legal complaints from polling companies might have meant this. The language on this was quite soft. That there is a sort of herding that pollsters wanted to produce results that were like the things that other pollsters have got. But I thought it was interesting that you wrote in the magazine this week that you wish you had paid less attention to the horse trading and more attention to actually what individual manifestos were. And I do think there is a grounds for Labour to be a bit sore there that the conversation never got onto what the do George Osborne sums that up, because we all presume that was just a negotiating position. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. And, and I said to someone who was fairly... I can never remember if it's bullish or bearish, but whichever one of the animals is bad... I was I was that animal about Labour's chances. I think both animals are bad in different... I mean, you know, uh, if you're running away from either of them, that is probably uh, your I, life I was, has gone wrong. I was pessimistic about Labour's chances of forming a government, but I always assumed there would be some form of coalition deal. And I reread my coverage of the Tory manifesto, and it's basically like, this is crazy. But, you know, <laughs> the Lib Dems will get rid of that. And... I think a lot of the coverage was exactly this kind of like, oh, here's the stuff that the Tories have put in. What into, do the DUP want? Yeah, to, here's the thing they've got to bribe the DUP. Here's the thing they're going to give away when the Lib Dems say, no, you can't do that, etc. etc. There was, it was all, we, we, I think almost all journalists covered all of the manifestos through the prism of how can these. Yeah, they're be, provisional. Yeah, they're provisional manifestos. And I think, I don't think, to be honest, that Labour have a grounds to feel aggrieved about that uh, because I think that what the polls weren't picking up is people did not want Ed Miliband's Labour Party. If they had, the Tories already had five years of, of cruel and economic So you mean if it had been, if we'd put aside all that SNP deal stuff, if it had just been, do you want Ed Miliband's Labour or David Cameron's Tory party? Those are the two choices. Absent yeah. anything else, people would you think would have still said, I think they would have still said, I want TV movie guy. I want the TV movie guy. I think the people who can feel aggrieved though are the Lib Dems because they had this problem, and the polls sort of meant they basically had to run a campaign going, here's why you want us to make a deal. Well, that was the weird thing, like, we'll be a heart for the Conservatives yeah. and a head for the, the Labour. Yeah, but I mean, but the problem is, of course, that basically meant they were running as, like, we'll be... We'll be the filling in a sandwich. Yeah, and it's no. also just like, it's like, they basically were running on, we'll make Ed Miliband more cruel and David Cameron more incompetent. They weren't running on any of the positives about either themselves or the other. So the things that were good about Ed Miliband, they were basically saying, well, we won't do that. And the things which were good about Cameron, they were saying, we won't do that. If the polls had been clearer, the Lib Dems would be able to go, actually, as one uh, Liberal Democrat MP says to Philip Cowley in uh, his sort of academic study into the defeat, if we'd known what the polls were, the Lib Dem campaign would have been the Tories are coming and they're going to eat your baby. Uh, and I think that probably would have changed things. And also, the Lib Dems do well when the election is a foregone conclusion because people can go, oh, well, my Lib Dem works hard. They point a lot of potholes. They help with garbage. But I can still get Tony Blair is in, in office, Margaret Thatcher in 87. Mm. They did really badly in 1992 because no one was certain about the result. They did very badly in 2015, mainly because of the coalition. But my instinct is in the southwest, 
where you've had six Tories switched for six Lib Dems, if people had known the Conservatives were heading for victory and the SNP thing was not a thing, the, the Lib Dems would have been, been fine. But yeah, I'm not one of those people who thinks in the SNP factor mattered all that much i think it was about a fear of ed Miliband more than labor's left right thing right? i think so. it i think it was about about weakness i think mm. if you'd had golden brown as leader the idea that the smp would have bossed him around you'd imagine he would have thrown a mobile phone at them yeah. whereas the, the worry was that you know that ed, ed Miliband probably i think the, the feeling was that actually if you imagine a conversation between ed Miliband and nicola sturgeon i would put my money on nicola sturgeon and i yeah. think that was just a very and that actually is, is, is one of Jeremy Corbyn's saying. I mean, the sentence Jeremy Corbyn bossed around by the SNP sounds like sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? Jer- Jeremy Corbyn, you know, isn't isn't going to be bossed around by his own MPs, let alone some random Scottish ones. No offence, Scottish listeners. Um, but that's one of the things I remember Emily Thornberry saying this to me is that she had gone on, you know, that she really feels that you, this pre her appointment as shadow defence secretary that when you go on TV to defend something, you can't do, you can't um and ah, you can't sort of go, well, hey, you make a very good point. Actually, I suppose that's what we should. No, even if you're slightly overstating your case, you are there to make the case. It's like a, you know, it's a, it's a law court. Your, you know, your role there is to argue that position as strongly as you can. And I think that for those of us who who are sort of nuanced feet who want to kind of go but isn't everything more complicated than that actually people don't like politicians telling them it's a lot more complicated than that they mm. you know they know the world is complicated they want to have clear yeah and the problem lines. with that it's complicated than that is it's a bit like myth busting what people think they're saying they think they're offering a useful explanation but actually what they're going is oh you stupid yeah oh. right well on that <laughs> i think you've just offended scottish people and stupid people so you know let's uh, let's call it a halt there I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now for the latest from Westminster, it's down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So, what's been going on um, on this week? There's um, there's some kind of sacking of some guy who's head of policy and rebuttal, isn't it? That's right. So, the big talking point at Westminster is the resignation of Neil Coleman, who was Jeremy Corbyn's head of policy and rebuttal, as you say, one of his most senior aides. And I think this is significant for two reasons. The first is that Coleman was often described to me as one of the pragmatists in the camp against the radicals such as Seamus Milne and Andrew Fisher. And the departure of Coleman, although there are reports that um, attempts are being made to find him a new role, um, would signify a shift in the political balance in Corbyn's office to to the left. So Coleman, for instance, was one of the people I know who was advocating um, a much more limited reshuffle than uh, than Seamus Milne and others wanted. They they clearly wanted uh, the replacement of, of Hilary Benn as, as Shadow of Foreign Secretary and, and the replacement of Rosie Winston as uh, Chief Whip, neither of which happened. And the second reason it's, it's significant is because Coleman is probably, among Shadow Cabinet members, the most respected member of Corbyn's office. He's someone who worked for Ken Livingston at City Hall and was the only Ken staffer then retained by Boris Johnson, um, simply because Boris re- uh, admired his, his qualities. He was one of his uh, leading Olympics advisors. Uh, he was awarded a, a CBE. He's seen as someone who's, who's, who's run something, who's uh, competent 
and who's very smart. And after the the news broke, one shadow minister uh, told me, you know, they can't afford to have people like him walking out. Um, yeah, so he's, um, although his title, I imagine most of our listeners will go, Labour had a head of rebuttal. They don't appear to be very good at rebutting. He actually, that sort of was a title in name only, really. It was actually policy that was his brief, wasn't it? Yes, it's one of the most important roles in in the leader's office. It was formerly held by Torsten Bell, who's now head of the Resolution Foundation. And he is the, the figure who liaises with all shadow cabinet members on, on, on policy detail and who also acts um, as one of the well, as one of the sort of key watchers of watchers of the government. That's that's the that's the rebuttal side in 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 terms of um, at big set piece events like the budget, uh, the spending review, um, government announcements. Uh, he'll look for the for the holes in in government policy. Is there any word on who they might get to replace him? Will it be a promotion for Andrew Fisher, Corbyn's? Uh... Uh, political advisor or will they seek to bring someone else in from outside it's a good question i uh, there's no um there are no names floating about yet though there are reports that um Seamus mill would like to bring back carmel nolan who worked um as on communications for the for the corbyn campaign that wouldn't be in a in a policy role um andrew fisher uh could could of course be be promoted to the role but it, it's worth noting that would be um, hugely antagonistic towards uh, towards Labour MPs, many of whom were were angry that Andrew Fisher kept his job after um, allegedly supporting uh, rival party candidates. Right. Um, so, other than movement, movements in the leader's office, what else has been going on this week? So, the PMQs was 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 rather eventful again, um, mainly because David Cameron arrived with so much ammunition. Um, so Jeremy Corbyn, in his uh, interview with Andrew Marr at the weekend, had um, suggested Britain could retain the Trident submarines, but without nuclear warheads. Um, he supported uh, reaching a reasonable accommodation with Argentina over the Falklands and supported the return of secondary picketing, solidarity strike action. So that's strike action by the workers uh, not directly involved in the original strike, um, all of which are are positions that that Corbyn has long held. Um, the problem for him is that uh, most of those are at odds with, with public opinion, if you look at current opinion polls, and also at odds with uh, those of his party. And so as David Cameron um, attacked Corbyn in turn over all of those, the, 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 bench, the, the faces on the Labour benches had, had rarely looked more, more morose. And Labour MPs do feel that even when they they agree with Jeremy Corbyn and they think he's on strong ground, such as over the floods, such as over junior doctors, such as over um, uh, over the abolition of student grants, that something comes along that uh, distracts distracts attention. Some, as they see it, self inflicted wound. Yeah. Um, the Falkland stuff. Why? Uh, what there was then something afterwards in the lobby briefing, wasn't there, that caused further sort of controversy? What happened with that? Yes, so in some ways, rather than trying to dampen down the row, um, Corbyn's team, in, in, in the view of some MPs, escalated it by suggesting that the Falklands uh, was, a matter, was a disputed issue, was essentially a conflict between the UK and Argentina, and that rather than viewing it through the, through the lens of the 1980s, um, there had to be a serious discussion about what uh, arrangement could be made with with Argentina. So often, when a leader says something that's uh, controversial, something that provokes protest, um, aides will will step back from it. Um, in this case, they've basically held the line, 
And likewise on 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 Trident, um, some Labour MPs. The, a point often made is that uh, Labour conference actually endorsed the current position of Labour, which is to to renew um, Trident in in full by voting for um, a foreign policy document, Britain in the World, at at the last conference. Um, but what uh, Corbyn's team are now arguing is that because a defence review, which was approved by Labour's National Executive Committee is is underway. Essentially, the party has no current position on Trident. It's in a, as they put it, has a special character. And again, that uh, that enraged Labour MPs who who feel that uh, the party's policy, as approved by by conference, the the body that the left traditionally sanctifies, is to is to renew the the nuclear weapon system. And that far from giving um, MPs uh, and shadow cabinet members a free vote, which which looks almost certain, Jeremy Corbyn should, uh, if anything, whip the party in line with with current policy. Essentially, he should back down um, rather than us. Um, so that's how the MPs feel. It's interesting, isn't it? It kind of feels like proof of the old rule that no one is really an electoral reformer. Corbyn doesn't really care about conference now he's in charge. And MPs who didn't care about conference all that much suddenly do. Um is there the likelihood is next year conference will vote to uh, to back Trident abolition, isn't it? I mean, we all sort of know that that last year's conference was kind of in a special place where most of the old membership went and most of the new Corbyn joiners didn't bother to go. Yes, although the role of the trade unions who hold half of the votes at a conference will be crucial, of course, because the largest unite and and, and the GMB. Um, supports Trident Renew, and that's how Corbyn has ended up in in what seems to some an absurd position, which is saying that we could renew the submarines, but without nuclear warheads. Um, in fact, in terms of the internal political disputes within Labour, it, it, it's a logical position because it, it's a way to try and keep both sides happy. The unions are happy because no jobs are lost because the subs are still built. Um, well, he keeps the CND wing of the party happy because these subs will no longer have nuclear warheads on them. Well, we'll see if that holds the line together. Thank you very much. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Coach. Hello, and Helen and I are joined by our digital assistant, Stephanie Boland, to discuss forensic science and murder. Helen, well, yeah, written a piece uh, this week on this. Th- th- that's the reason I wanted to talk about it, actually. So this week in the magazine, I've profiled a really interesting and wonderful woman, I-, I think, called Professor Sue Black, who works at the University of Dundee. She trained as an anatomist, and she's now a forensic anthropologist. And she does two things which I think are really interesting. So first of all, she is uh, she runs a, an anatomy course, and she runs a dissection lab. So she's got a, a big um, morgue of her own, a big mortuary of her own. Um, but she's very she's an expert in human identification. She's probably one of the top experts in, in Britain on this. And that is of both of dead people and living people. So she went, in, for example, in, to Kosovo in 1999 and looked at mass graves. Um, of people killed in massacres by Serbian troops and identified them, you know, worked out whether or not the, what we could see from the forensic evidence would actually stand up in a war crimes court. Um, and I think that stuff's really interesting. But the thing that they've been doing for the last, I guess, about 10 years or so is also identification of the living by various methods. So they are very good at identifying, for example, 
child abusers from images of their hands. So this is a thing I didn't know when we went in, that fingerprints have, have got all kinds of problems with them. Uh, in fact, in Scotland, fingerprints aren't accepted as a evidence of fact, they're evidence of opinion. They're only accepted as opinions because there was a case with a woman called Shirley McKee who was a police officer. They found her printed a scene. Oh, yeah, all forensic officers, all police officers all have their um, fingerprints logged because obviously you want to be able to exclude them. Um, but they found this fingerprint at a murder scene and they... First of all, they suspended her, then they sacked her, then they um, prosecuted her for perverting the course of justice. And actually what it looks like is that although there were some matches on very, on the points that they look at, actually it's not a perfect fingerprint match. And so in light of that, they've really looked again at fingerprints um, as a way of, of identifying people. She also told me that iris identification is exactly as you would see in Mission Impossible. It is, it is possible to spoof it, to copy it. You can make contact lenses. And also your irises are, they, they form at the same time as your skin in the womb so they respond to, to drugs so basically things that change over the course of your life are bad things to use as biometric information you want unchanging like stuff teeth. well teeth do but luckily most people visit the dentist quite regularly so they're that when they identify people from their teeth they will go to the last record right you won't be going back to your childhood dental records but um but the thing the most the thing that i kind of want to talk to you about and because i know stephanie you've read the same as i have david simon who wrote the wires book um homicide life mm. on the street which goes into this in quite a bit of detail is the difficulties that we have about using science in the courtroom forensic science because people sort of i think have this idea that science solves things science is like science rules you know science is yes or no like did he do it dna says yes and actually it's a lot more complicated than that yeah i think that's true and um I don't know if listeners have been watching Making a Murderer and seen how much discussion there is around that, that there's now big Reddit sub-forums on the internet where people are trying to rake through this sort of scientific data, you know, civilians trying to come up with irrefutable opinions yeah, based on it, which think... we, just, we just can't have that degree of certainty, it sounds like. Yeah, I think I think making a murder is a really good example of people looking at like suddenly self-appointing themselves kind of ballistics experts or DNA profiling experts. So one of the things that's a problem with DNA profiling, although they can now use tiny, tiny, tiny samples of DNA, is that you are constantly throughout the day shedding your DNA on people, and there are innocent. I'm <laughs> Sorry, it just sounds like a like a really nerdy chat up line. Like, hey, babe, want to come and shed some DNA? Yeah, but when you're found dead and we all have to come up with an alibi, <laughs> why are you covered in bits of Stephen? Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. But um, no, yeah, this is a better chat up line, Stephen. Um, say, would you like to um, interbreed your face mites with mine? Because you have mites that live on your face. And as I understand it, I can basically, I, now I'm saying this, I think I was... How is that better? I, I mean, was, I, I would no, say I saying, the bar was low, but you managed to go below it. No, I'm saying this, I think I was told this by John Ellidge, so actually maybe I'm going to get somebody angry is going to write in and say, but he said that you have face mites that live on your face. Because you definitely have eyelash mites that are so... The little kind of... Yeah, and their they're, uh, ingestion process is so efficient they actually almost don't excrete anything. That's uh, But they do, you know, you are a, a writhing mass of is tiny that, things. That's not what sleep is. Sleep isn't like their is it? Oh, God, I'm sorry, I should redo that for the benefit of our PG-13 certificate. Um, do I need to redo I that? I think we can just bleep that, can't okay, we? I think we can just... probably we can handle the realness of that. Uh, no, that's mostly like dead skin cells that you've sloughed off during the night. Um, but yeah, so uh, John Elledge assures me that if you sleep on the pillow next to somebody for a certain amount of time, your face mites will breed okay, and then you'll have like a nice, your own yeah. little face mite family. Oh, I'm going to sleep on the couch when I go so, home. So, you know, you so don't even high. need to get a pet because in some ways you and your wife already have pets. <laughs> oh, that's so unpleasant. Um, the thing I'm intrigued by is, um, 
this I, I kind of always assumed that people who worked in mortuaries were doctors who didn't like backtalk. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did uh, too. I yeah. really thought it was a thing for people who were slightly weird and they didn't want to have to talk to patients and therefore they just they preferred dead people. And that's not what um, Sue Black is. Uh, I think she's an astonishing interviewer. You can hear her uh, if people want to listen to her. She appeared on the Infinite Monkey Cage. She also did Desert Island Discs a while ago. She's an incredibly upbeat pleasant grounded serene person and actually you know that wasn't just my impression i talked to val mcdermott the crime writer she's been friends with her for 20 years and she said yeah sue is brilliant and she just puts things in the workbox and she goes home so she spends all day either you know preserving a, a body or investigating horrible images of child abuse and then at the end of the day she says you know she has this mantra which is you know you didn't do this you're not responsible for this and she is able to compartmentalise, which I think is really impressive because that is a job that takes a huge toll on people. So what are that? So you mentioned she fingerprints have kind of been discredited as an irrefutable piece of information. What are the techniques that are now that she's using to? So the one that they used in a in a couple of cases um, uh, is is hand vein analysis, and actually that's something that um, I spoke to somebody who works in the civil service, and they said that actually on security clearance they now do fingerprint vein analysis because one of the great advantages that's got over fingerprints is you can check that the person is still alive. Ah, huh. which is obviously in a biometric you want to check that someone hasn't just taken someone's body someone's part, part and and you know you haven't just turned up with a finger. Um, but yeah, so your um, your veins are more unique at the further they get. No, not that things can be more unique. They're more different the further you get away from your heart so they form the veins on the back of your hand form while you're in the uterus of your mother and they are incorrect they are highly distinctive so look at the fact that they're I like you know, that we're all looking at yeah everyone I hopefully <laughs> everyone is looking no one is operating heavy machinery at the moment when they're listening to this because if you look at your hands you'll see that the the veins on, on both hands are, are very different to this right before they go to bed <laughs> i'm gonna have nightmares this is something about face mites about face mites and stuff like that but um for example gait analysis they think you know which is when you look at cctv and you say yeah he walks like mm. that bloke it does in the thing that's um something that they think needs a lot of work um she told me that america has a lot of problem with bite mark evidence uh, which you know you would think is, is not unreasonable because your t- people's teeth don't vary that much, that much and yeah. also the distorting effect of looking if you're looking at bite marks and skin for example partial bite marks that's difficult but they um they did a big exercise a couple of years ago where they got members of the judiciary and um scientists together they didn't tell the scientists that they were members of the judiciary there and got them to talk about what what worried them about forensic evidence that they were using and they came up with a huge long list of all the things that they'd really like to look at again and not this isn't to say that all forensic science is, is crap by any means like lots of it is really useful but it needs to be presented properly as like this is how certain we are this is you know this is this proves that you can't rule this person out for example up to you know there is a one in 300 million chance that this could be someone else um and also that you know lots of the times not in my mind jury's not understanding it judges don't understand it and i think that's difficult i've just been reading about a horrifying case that's in the news at the moment and a lot of the discussion about that comes down to the fact that several different pathologists profoundly disagree about what things you know what is bruising for example what's warm what's discoloration and that those kind of things are, are actually subjective so when we're talking about science we're actually talking about the interpretation of science often and how, how, do, how do people become isn't it i mean it, it feels like yeah because obviously i now know that it's not just doctors with a bad bedside manner how, how do you become uh uh, an, an anatomist. I mean, it's not like doing anthropology or whatever, where the answer is, I just wanted to get into a Russell Group university. Right. <laughs> this is your really efficient method of like, it's Steve, we said Stephen's joke of the week, we should do Stephen's alienated group of the week. 
And of course, I, anthropologists. You know, people from Wolverhampton are bastards. Here's another group of people I don't like. I, uh, some of my best friends are anthropologists. But that but, was always because yeah. uh, in Oxford you do. Well, I don't know if it's the same again, but in Oxford you did archaeology and anthropology, didn't you? Which was I've got a lot of. Well, opinions I'd like to make about... I did not do. No, I, I did a real subject. People but... did, I think, but this is different to that. This is, I mean, forensic anthropology is looking at bones, and the reason that she ended up doing it, she trained as an anatomist. Um, and she's got a total morbid fear of rodents ever since her dad beat to death a rat in front of her when she was a child. And they had to investigate carcinomas, cancers in rats' brains in their third year. And she said, can I not do that because I don't want to have to slaughter rodents? And they said, well, look at human bones instead. And that's where, and then that's when she ended up then working for the foreign office for, for years. Um, but yeah, it all because she hated rats. Is there a, I mean, is there a recruitment problem? Because... You know, in the 19th century, we all lived among death all the time. People named their children after after ones which had uh, snuffed it. Yeah, this um, is the horrible thing about Samuel Richardson. He's got he had five children that were all called the same thing. So he just I think they're all called sufficient. They, I think he had five five maybe five Samuels like or, or five daughters that all had the same name. Yeah, people Samuel just, 3.0. Well, that's just yeah. They're kind of like well, let's see if this one sticks. But yeah, oh, sorry, carry on. So it does. Does this mean, I mean, is it harder to recruit morticians, anatomists? No. Oh. This is the thing I find really interesting, is that one of the big problems is, so Dundee makes a big splash of the fact that it lets you do proper dissections, because actually one of the things that was dying out, because it's really expensive um, to, to pickle bodies, essentially. So the old method was that you used formaldehyde, formalin, at a high percentage, and that was the EU were getting grumpy about that because it is known to be a carcinogen. So they were moving to this idea of something called fresh frozen, where you basically dismember a body and then you'd you know you'd get your class in, you'd give them twelve shoulders, defrost them, get them out of the freezer, and then but then you only had under hot lamps, you only had a couple of days of working on them, and then you had to throw them away. And also, if that problem when you think it's a body, but actually it's like some leftover lasagna. I thought I was going to have some leftover bolognese, and it turns out it's chili con carne, and we don't have any rice left, so. Yeah, and imagine how much worse that would be were it a leg. (laughs) Um, So then, so this is one of the things, but this is the thing that I found really fascinating and there's no way to explain, which is that 100% of their honours graduating class last year were were women and they actually, it's not one of those professions where the rank and file is women and then there's men at the top. You know, there are lots of women leading departments there. And I tried to work out exactly if it was that point that you raised about that idea of, is it that, you know, women used to wash the dead and prepare the dead? Is it a traditional thing? It kind of doesn't seem to be. Like, it went through a phase of being very masculinized before. Is it just that... I th- And the, the only suggestion we can come up with is it's kind of seen in the same way that biology is very heavily female, whereas other STEM subjects are much more male, that it's kind of seen as being like, this is, you know, for girls who like science, this is kind of okay. Like, mm. this is an okay form of science. But yeah, I was yeah, it was all it was all women. And the two mortuary assistants I met who were in the middle of embalming at Cadaver were both were both very chatty twenty year old women, twenty something women. So do you donate body parts? You donate your whole body. Um and you can do it some people do it, and this is something else I hadn't thought about at all. The average funeral now costs three thousand six hundred pounds, and that's absent like lots of other stuff. So some people donate their bodies just really simply because they think I would rather put that money towards my, you know, grandchildren's university fees than I would spending it on, you know, on having a roses and having a cortege and all the kind of other stuff. There's a shortage of burial plots, so people get cremated anyway. So um and you know, some people just really want to help you know like if it's a disease that's kind of a quite an interesting disease that killed them they kind of think well it'd be nice to find you know to help people so they reckon that each body um six people will train on that 
So I, I, this is the thing. I came away from it really upbeat about the concept of donating my body. I don't know how you feel about that, but I just thought if you can, after death, six doctors can, you know, you will help them improve their skills. That's yeah. a quite a good legacy. It's a, of, it's, yeah, it's a lot of use. I mean, it's probably more good than any number of trenchant blogs on the state of the Labour Party. <laughs> Um, <laughs> your finest contribution yeah. um, so they this is the thing I find really interesting they have they come and all the donors come in to talk to them first and I thought how on earth do you end that conversation like see you next week <laughs> next time I see you you'll be on a slab um, but you know they, they, they're they really, they're incredibly professional about it and, do you not just see like, like is it Star Trek where it's like whether we meet in this life or the next that's Gladiator I think isn't it yeah obviously that's not Star Trek <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> But they say that, you know, she says that um, Vivian, her bequest secretary, says, you know, well, hopefully we won't see you for a long time. And sometimes, you know, the patients phone in and give them an update on their medical woes. Um, and then they, they, they have a big service of remembrance at the end of the year with all the students who've worked on the bodies and all the families of people who've donated their bodies um, come to, which I think is really nice. Like I say, it, it made me feel a lot more chipper about death. You're kind of Irish. You like death, Stephanie. Well, I was going to say it's a it's a really I always think of it as a really Scots thing because it's you know the old medical schools in Edinburgh and I know Alistair Gray's written novels about mm. vivisection and the minute you said Dundee, it kind of made sense because that medical tradition up there seems to be more open and discussed as part of cultural life. But I don't know if that's my rank stereotyping of Scots, but I think of Scots literature and Scots crime writing and. I think there is a big movement as well that it ties into, which is the kind of people trying the normalisation of death, the sort of feeling that actually, which is a weird parallel with what's happening with childbirth, is people feeling that natural things have been kind of over-medicalised and actually do we focus too much on really invasive medical interventions and not enough on palliative care, not enough on giving people a good, you know, death, the death that most people want to die at home surrounded by love. Most people don't want to die having their chest cracked open. Um, You know, and that, and I think that's that's a really important thing about and also just teaching people like I, one of the things that I said to Sue Black when I interviewed her I said well I, you know I hadn't I had not seen a dead body before then it's it, and and that was just not something you know and, and I'm we're, you know we're probably one of the first generations that would be able to say that because other people you know our grandparents well, generation an wake, it, yeah an open wake or they would have had a brother or sister who died and you know you would have seen that so I think that's we have kind of taken this, and I think it's a problem. I think with death and disability, the tendency is to try and push it into into hospitals, push it away from us, and and that has a really it affects people who are, have lost relatives. It certainly affects the relatives of disabled people if you kind of that kind of institutionalisation process that went on in the middle of last century. Well, and I know there's this kind of movement to um, the order of the good death, and kind of movements to bring people to even talk about what might happen to you and what do you want your body to do. Because it's also, if you're, if you're operating in a society where you're not really comfortable talking about what your arrangements are going to be for you after your death, that's so stressful for a family. To... And that's a really big problem with organ donation because, you know, people haven't had that conversation. So, you know, families don't know what their loved one would have wanted, I think. And, and, and it's difficult for doctors to kind of raise it at that time anyway. But if you've, you know, if, if you're... If you know, if you have clearly stated your preference before, then it's it, the whole process becomes a lot yeah, easier. It's strange because I realised because I'm quite morbid, and I guess because my mum's a priest, so she's buried a lot of people. Um, I and I have had quite a lot of end of life conversations, so we both know we, if assuming euthanasia hasn't been legalised, if one of us gets dementia, we want the Swiss option. And then I've always quite liked the idea of my body being broken down for parts because it's not going to do anyone it's not going to do any good in the ground or being burned up. Yeah, no, I think um, that's because it was exactly the same. You know, my dad's a, a, a 
a deacon as well and and that's because that is you are it's one of those professions where you are constantly being brought into contact with people at, at the point of death and and yeah I'm, I, I, yeah I cannot be more pro organ donation because you're you know you're not using it anymore it's kind of how I think of it um but anyway, all things come to an end, including this podcast. <laughs> that was so smooth. Um, so and smooth. so uh, thank you very much, and we'll see you again next week. And now it's time for the joke of the week. The opinion pollsters this week brought forward their post-mortem into why they got the result of the election so wrong. Many in Labour believe that the uh, polling being uh, so flawed was partly what cost them the election, and the coverage of the Labour-SNP pact is what did Fred Miliband. People within Labour who were worried and it was their line on immigration, who spent their time urging him to take a stronger, uh, stronger line on controlling Britain's borders, were heard to remark to one another that it was the first time that Ed Miliband had accepted that polls could cost you a job. been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis with stephen bush our producer is india bork and our music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons you can find us on itunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.